Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. From Mamma Mia, you're listening to Lady Startup Stories, the podcast where we find out how female entrepreneurs built their businesses. Lady Startup Stories is part of the Lady Startup Movement that helps women launch and grow their own businesses. If it was founded or co-founded by a woman, it's a lady startup. And I'm your host, Georgia Love. Hey, this is Hannah Vasicek and Rachel Vasicek, and this is our Lady Startup Story. When sisters Hannah and Rachel Vasicek launched a handmade jewellery business at the Salamanca Markets, they had no idea Francesca was going to become a household name. Hannah was studying science and law, but she knew it wasn't the path for her. So she thought, well, what if this fun side hustle jewellery thing could be more? And the rest is history. Now the sisters have 60 employees and two bricks and mortar stores. And thanks to their business, they've donated over three quarters of a million dollars to charities across the country. So how did they build their brand? And why is it so important for a business to have a purpose? Here's Hannah and Rachel. I want to start from the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. Hannah, you were the business mind in the family well before Francesca was even a twinkle in your eye. Yeah, it's really funny. Rachel and I are actually six years apart, so I had to kick things off from the age of 12. So, yeah, I started making jewellery when I was 12 years old. We grew up in a rural town in New South Wales and there literally was nothing to do there and I was one of those crazy energetic children and so mum dropped me off at a beading store one day I was like go on bead like get rid of this energy and I was hooked okay so where did you grow up because it wasn't in Tassie or when you were much younger you weren't in Tassie then were you yeah no it was actually a place called Hawksnest it's on the east coast I think there's a population of maybe max 2,000 people and then it wasn't until moving to Tasmania when I was 16 that I thought that I was in the biggest city ever. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my like, God. This place is just limitless. Like they have massive stores in the city. I mean, there was no high-rises, nothing. Yeah, the most but we had in Hawkses was like a solo prices yeah. and Bilo, which were like reject shops, which was the funniest thing. And Hannah used to buy it. Like I used to watch her buying the beads from the reject shop, which were like those tacky little like two dollars two dollar a packet glass and plastic beads which is just so funny <laughs> oh god that's so gorgeous i love that so much <laughs> so you've moved to the big smoke of hobart tasmania when you were 16 tell me how this being a, a kid making beaded jewelry in your backyard has turned into what became the start of a business Yeah, it's crazy. At 16, I had so much jewellery laying around the house. My parents were so crook at me. They were like, you have to get rid of it. So I actually, and I must have had, you know, so much confidence. I put it all into a shoebox and walked to Salamanca, which a lot of people know as, you know, 
the forefront of Tasmanian sort of nightlife and everything like that. There was a gallery there and I walked in and I was like, oh, hi, my name's Hannah. I've got all of these jewellery pieces. Would you like to stock me? And, they, <laughs> and like 16-year-old, like I literally would have looked like 12, and they actually loved my stuff. So they were the first people to stock my jewellery handmade by Hannah at the time. And then I realised, I went in there one day and I was sort of spying and I saw this necklace for sale for like $99 and they'd paid me $30 for it. And I was outraged. I was like, that means they're making so much money and it was selling out and everything like that. So I was like, no, I have to cut them out and apply at Salamanca Markets. And again, it would have just looked so funny, this 16-year-old applying for a market stall. So every Saturday morning I'd get up at 6am and go and line up down the street and we'd wait to see who of the people who owned a site didn't turn up and then I'd get allocated a site. And the first time that I ever went, I didn't have a car, so mum dropped me to the end of the market (laughs) with a tent and a bag of jewellery and I didn't get in. It was really sad. But then another lady basically said, oh, you can set up a card table on the side of my stall. And so I did. I think I sold more than she did that day. Oh, my God. And from the first necklace that I sold, I was like, this is the best feeling in the world. Now, there's a massive difference between a 16-year-old who can't get a spot in a market to what Francesca is today. Mm-hmm. What was the next step? I mean, how did you even get a spot in the market? Was that the next step? 11 years, actually. <laughs> <laughs> You know, they say business isn't made overnight and it really isn't. And even our journey along 11 years at the market, so every Saturday, rain, hail or shine, I would be down there and soon after I wrote Rachel in, who was 11 at the time, oh and we, we must have looked so funny. That people must have walked past and been like, those girls are raising money for their parents or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> their parents are making them do this. But we started selling together and Rachel picked up my lingo of how we sold and stuff like that. And, yeah, it was over the next 11 years really that helped us grow to what we are today. So 11 years in a market, what changed from the start to the end of just looking at that kind of market point of it? Obviously, you grew up a a heck of a lot. Mm -hmm. What else changed? When did it kind of become or move from being something that you did as kids that you enjoyed and was a fun way to make a bit of pocket money on a Saturday to something that actually looked like it was more of a business? I still didn't think that you could ever, you know, do what you loved, like a jewellery career as your profession. So I went and studied science and law at uni and um, Rachel was still at school. And at this stage, we still had Handmade by Hannah. And I have to point out that Handmade by Hannah, our target market was like 60-year-old women with pearl necklaces mostly, which <laughs> oh you probably God. don't know. No, I don't. Tell me about that. I was making these designs that were a lot older, pearls and stuff, and Rachel was like, I don't want to wear our jewellery. So we had to pivot and we started making cool jewellery and Handmade by Hannah was a bit dorky by that stage like I was in I think second year uni Rachel you were in 
you're st- yeah still in school it was scary because obviously the older women had money we'd had to convince like our age people a little bit more what we had and this is mm-hmm. what's so funny we had half handmade by hannah and half francesca at the stall and then eventually it would be like a quarter handmade by hannah and francesca was going well and then it kind of disappeared <laughs> and now we look at the old like facebook pages and we're like what were we thinking So you actually gave it a different uh, name and everything to really disassociate it from the first brand. What was the decision behind that and why Francesca? Basically, again, we weren't cool being handmade by Hannah. (laughs) And so we wanted a name as a really strong brand and we wanted a logo as well because if you think about all the big brands it's like Chanel has their logo YSL has their monogram so we started thinking and brainstorming and actually we were at the beach one day one of my girlfriends is a marketing major and she was just asking me questions and she's like what about names like do you know what you wanted to be called when you were younger and I was like oh actually mum wanted to call me Francesca we were like that sounds good Francesca that's like a strong name and kind of sat with it and I was like I actually think that's it and then we started playing with an F and sort of playing around with that and that's how the logo was born and yeah I don't know I feel like it was just something that we were like yep okay done I mean it wasn't it wasn't because when we did have half the market stall as Francesca the name was created first and we had this kind of slanted cursive name you can go back in our archives on Facebook and see like the old Francesca (laughs) logo which was literally like an old school cursive of Francesca. We used to like print out on cardboard paper and cut it up and then put the studs on it. And it's so funny to see from like the days where we literally cut up bits of cardboard to display the earrings on to now like full on packaging. Even that evolution in itself is like insane. So then when did it turn from being cardboard hand cut out stick an earring on them to something that became more again less of a market stall and more of a brand and an an identity I had realized in my studies that the only thing that you can really protect yourself from in terms of copying is your logo and so I was like okay Rachel we have to have the logo in all of our designs that's when we started to really I guess have a bit of an image where people really wanted to buy the logo and people could see the logo on other people. So it kind of became a bit more of a sort of a cult down in Tassie. (laughs) But I think it was also when we opened our first ever bricks and mortar store. Hannah found which one? (laughs) Harrington Street. Yeah. So we had this little tiny makeshift store on the outskirts of the CBD of this big city we thought was, you know, huge of all streets in total and I think people recognized us as more of a brand and less of a market Mm. stall and that allowed us to have customers coming in constantly and creating that community and customer base within Hobart and then the word of mouth kind of spread so I think that was a huge moment yeah and I mean don't get me wrong that store literally was I think $400 a week I was working a law job to be able to pay the rent it was so makeshift we had like freedom furniture we had this ugly wall of electrical cords and we obviously couldn't afford to do much in terms of renovations and it's funny so we opened that store March 2013 and it was 18 months on that we opened like the dream store inside the shopping centre that we absolutely couldn't afford. We got rejected for the loan, for the fit out and things like that but I think opening the dream store was kind of the 
wow, we looked like an international mm. brand with the fit out. So talk to me about the plunge of opening the store in the first place. How difficult was that to make the decision to do that? And then how in only 18 months did you get that dream store inside a shopping centre? Like that's a massive leap in such a short amount of time. Yeah, I think you have to be a little bit crazy. (laughs) (laughs) But truly, I think the thing that made it happen was I would actually say prior to this, prior to opening the store, I was in fifth year law and I actually applied for a Global Entrepreneur Award and I was a top finalist for Australia. There was four of us and it's so funny because at this stage we literally were just at the market and I had to fly to Melbourne and present the business to a panel of judges and that exercise alone made me dream big so I had to kind of future project what I thought the business would look like and I found my little presentation the other day and I was like fire out that's crazy that practice of future planning and pitching what I believed this business could be actually gave us the confidence to step out and open a store it was kind of that it was winning that yeah, Winnie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what? Well, uh, yeah, forgot to mention that part. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we won. I remember they announced me as the winner and I was like, what? And I rang my dad and I was like, oh, my gosh, I just got named like Global Student Entrepreneur of the Year and they're flying me to New York next month. Oh, my God. To present the business at the World Trade Center. I know. And he's like, no, you didn't. <laughs> And I'm in school going, can you please take me with you? (laughs) No joke. And it wasn't even then. It was flying over. I still presented everything like that. But it was someone coming up to me after my presentation and after I hadn't won the global award. And he was like, it sounds like you have a really great business and you sound like you believe in it. And it's funny, it was that guy and his the hope he gave me that made me realise that maybe I should just try it. Wow. So how old were you at that point, Hannah and Rachel? I just finished uni. I just turned down a law job and I was 23. And Rachel was 17. Yeah, 17. So at 23, you've turned down a law job. You're paying rent for a home. You're paying rent for your shop. I mean, how much money is there still making at this point? Oh, look, it was so up and down, you know, because it was this tiny store. And at the start, I was doing cash flow forecasts back then, being like, how long can I survive? (laughs) But, you know, some days you'd get someone come in and spend a couple of hundred dollars, three or four hundred dollars, and I'd be able to breathe again, you know. And we started getting really busy that Christmas. And it's almost like we'd started nurturing this customer base and everyone wanted to support the local business. And it's funny, like I didn't even have enough money to have extra stock made. We would literally have stock out. And then when we'd close the store, we'd go upstairs and make more stock and put it out for the next day. (laughs) Oh, my God. So you're still hand-making it all yourselves at this point? Yeah, we handmade everything. I'd probably say 95% of the stock we handmade. And what about now? How do you manufacture now? I'd probably say it's about 50-50. So we still have an in-house production team. They're phenomenal and they hand make all of our bracelets, a lot of our beaded things and stuff like that. And then the other 50% is a lot of manufactured designs that Rachel heads up designing. Wow. That's pretty amazing that still with two bricks and mortar stores, that massive online business, you're still making 50% of your stuff 
yourselves. I think that's huge. And I think that's a, a really unique aspect to have in this day and age, particularly. Yeah, it's so important. Also, it's rewarding for us and people love it. And I think there's a little element that's taken away when you have to manufacture elsewhere because Mm. the art is almost compromised because you don't have that touch point with it anymore. So it is really special to be able to keep manufacturing in Hobart and giving an amazing team of girls a creative outlet. How do you decide on new designs? We hear that a lot when we're talking to startup owners is that they've got the idea in the first place, they get the business off the ground finally, and then they go, oh, what do I do now? I've got to keep making stuff. I've got to keep designing stuff. How do you continue to do that? A lot of our designs come from chatting with our customers, gauging what they are after, but also there's a huge element of inspiration. I mean, doing a little bit of research sometimes around a concept, you'll find crazy things. So for me last year, That was the Vieira shell, which I didn't even know existed before doing some Googling. And then the design elements were pulled from that. So Mm. it's kind of a bit like a snowball effect. You kind of have a little tiny idea and then your brain just evolves and it continues to grow. So I don't Mm. know. We're always constantly inspired around different crazy things. And it's interesting that the Vieira collection, people don't often realise that we have usually designed nine months in advance which is crazy. Like, how do you know what our customer is going to like in nine, 12 months time? But the benefit as well of in-house is like Rachel sometimes is like, oh, I just need to let off some creative steam. And she'll walk into the beating room and come out and be like, does everyone love this design? It's launching tomorrow. (laughs) So we also have that ability to really be fast to market as well, because we do have the in-house. And often people have said, why don't you just take it all overseas? It's so much cheaper, blah, blah. But honestly, like it's a massive part. No, of if I couldn't go into that room and come out with some new design every now and then, <laughs> I think I would be so devastated. <laughs> you said you take a lot of heedance from your customer as well of what they like and what they want. How do you know what they like? Is it on the dollars they spend? Or do you literally talk to them? We do both. You know, mm. a lot of collections, we've learnt so many lessons from designs we've launched that we still have dead stock from maybe eight years ago that is killing us. And so that's one of the ways our customers definitely tell us, <laughs> like, don't oh, we don't like this. <laughs> it's like, okay, noted, not going to do enamel anymore. <laughs> that's one of the funny ones. But yeah, so that's the dollar figure thing, I guess. But also engaging with our customers mm. is constantly our biggest focus, whether it's our retail girls in store, they have so many real relationships with mm. loyal customers And I think that's one of the beauties of us still being considered a small business is that we have this network of customers who will engage with us and say, we absolutely love what you've created this time, or I'm not so sure about this, you know, the earrings are too heavy. Mm -hmm. And we get past all of this feedback from our stores back up through the chain to me who does the designing. And it's kind of like little elements that you take on, but also Mm -hmm. social media is huge. We're constantly reaching out we on our socials. Ask, we ask yeah, we people. Ask. Well, I've done like polls before where we'll be in an argument in head office where yeah. I'm like, okay, I've designed this bracelet, guys. What do you think? And Hannah's like, I hate it. And There's then one, one of the bracelet girls- that she designed and it literally looked like a fish and I was like, nah. And it's a bestseller. Oh. So it's like our Rochelle bracelet, which is like a fine <laughs> bracelet like, with, on that. Yeah, with one pearl on it. So in times like that, we literally yeah. go on our socials and we'll put it up and we're like, guys, we're having an argument. We don't know what to do. You tell us, do you like this design? And we'll let them choose. How do you think that this business would look 
if it weren't for social media, if you didn't have that platform to be able to chat to your customers? Social media wasn't huge back then. Like I was using Instagram to edit photos and I didn't know I was even posting them on the wall. You can go very far back on Francesca's Instagram and see some really embarrassing photos. But in saying that, there is no way we would have a huge team like we do today if it wasn't for social media. Yeah, and I think as well social media allowed us to appear a lot bigger than we were yeah. as well. I mean, back then when, you know, following of a thousand was a big deal. And I remember in 2013, I kind of took on the Instagram account as more of a marketing platform than Hannah's poolside bikini shots, <laughs> which were being posted on Francesca's account. <laughs> and yeah, it was more so like we could project ourselves as more fashionable. We were showing our audience the aura and ethos of what Francesca was and you know Mm. it was a marketing platform that was free as well we couldn't Mm. afford to do bus signage or like you Mm. know big billboards and tv ads which were so expensive so it was kind of a way for us to show people what we wanted to be how we wanted to appear in the market how is it working together not just as two people together but as sisters (laughs) that's like the number one question everyone asks it's so funny there was a time when we were living and working together and I absolutely would not recommend that we um would get in the car with each other and like 10 minutes before I'd been like Hannah can I borrow this top and she's like no and I'm like screaming at her being like you're such a bitch and you know having these little funny arguments but as soon as we get into the work it'd be like okay work mode switch off so I think we've like really learned to make that divide between sisterhood Mm. and business and as well we have our own elements of the business that we focus on I think if we were Mm. treading on each other's toes and you know I was trying to do the business side of things and Hannah was trying to do the creative we would butt heads a lot but Mm. it's been a journey we've had (laughs) counselling would that be your advice for people going into business with somebody else but especially someone there who they're really close with just to really have very clear different roles Either that, I think it does still work if you dabble in similar roles, but I think the biggest thing for us was actually knowing each other's expectations of each other up front. We never had chats about that sort of thing, so we just, you know, like we'd be like, ah, this and this and this, and then I think it was once we started getting really busy that, you know, I thought Rachel was, you know, over this area of the business, she thought I was over this area of the business, and we we had sort of a misalignment. Yes, we're sisters, we grew up in the same household, but we are two completely different people. And I think that often we don't consider that it's okay to be different. We just Mm. need to understand how to communicate with each other and just even Mm. understanding each other's communication styles and how we resolve an issue when we're faced under stress, what do we do? All of those Mm. things, when we finally realised, we were like, (laughs) whoa, okay, so you like the opposite of what I like in a stressful situation. Like I want to retreat into a hole and Hannah's like, no, we must fix this now. Yeah. And so you can imagine when we didn't know this about each other, <laughs> literally Rachel would walk away from a meeting and I would grab her and tell her to sit back down. <laughs> and so once we realised the difference between our communication yeah. styles, we're like, right, Hannah, you go and talk to a wall for a while <laughs> and drive your opinion at the wall and let me go for a wander and we'll reconnect. <laughs> would you do things differently in terms of working with a sibling if you had your time over again? Like 100% we had this conversation the other day where 
we just get each other. Mm. There was a time where we were so consumed in work together because it's one of those things that you actually, like the boundaries blur between work and family. And a lot of people listening who are in family-run businesses will know this because, you know, you talk about work at dinner tables and things like that. There was a stage where we found that that was damaging to our sister relationship. And so, again, we have to, like, communicate hi, Rachel, I've got my work hat on right now. I'm talking to you as blah, blah, blah. And then I'd be like, hey, Rach, can we have a sister chat, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and so it sounds so dumb, but you literally have to like communicate the boundaries and put those in place as well. It's before. been a roller coaster. <laughs> I think if we didn't have these realisations, we absolutely would not be in business together right now. Yeah. Now you talk about having the same values. That's a huge part of Francesca's business model is giving back the values of the business. Can you talk to me about that, what that means and why that was important to you? Yeah, I guess there was a time in the business where, you know, Francesca was still early days and we were just creating jewellery for people to wear and it got to the point where Hannah and I had a conversation of, this almost feels a little bit empty, like there's a missing part to the puzzle. And it was the fact that we kind of looked at each other and were like, we sell jewellery, right? So what more is there to making jewellery? And we have been raised in a family that is very altruistic. We love giving back. And the thing was that we were missing that value that was so important to our personal lives Mm -hmm. and not having it inside our business. So the awareness bracelet was born we had be through hers be hers. First. Yeah, yeah, we had be hers first, which is an anti-human trafficking non-for-profit. And that was an incredible initiative from a Hobart mm. charity. What happened was the charity came to us and they were at their early stages and they said, oh, do you want to sponsor us? Do you want to give a donation? And at that stage, I was like, mate, I can't even pay for my groceries. <laughs> but <laughs> we really wanted to help. So anti-human trafficking and I said to them, I said, look, we don't have any money to give, but we're already making jewellery, so how about we design a collection? I remember it still to this day, that day that we set up at Grand Chancellor, we had this collection called Let Courage Bloom and it was like a flower on a bracelet and everything like that. And literally the first day that we sold at this event, Be Her Freedom, we sold $10,000 worth of jewellery and we donated that $10,000 straight to them. It was when we both got this feeling of satisfaction and we were like, wow, this is insane that we can raise awareness and raise funds for something through doing what we already do. And, yeah, from there, our first ever awareness bracelet was born after Be Hers, which was breast cancer. But Be Hers still to this day remains our number one charity and we've raised over a couple of hundred thousand at least for them. We've built a rescue centre in Thailand. Yeah, it's, it's pretty awesome. So I think that was the moment that we started to feel fulfilled in what we were doing. Yeah, it was a difference between feeling success and fulfilment. Yeah. Our tagline is success means nothing unless you're giving back. And that to us is just so true because we were feeling like the business was taking off, but we weren't getting that sense of fulfilment. And so it was incredible. That's a really beautiful story and I think that's a really nice thing for people to take away as well, whether that means working with a charity or whether it means there being some type of part of their business that they're feeling like it's filling that hole in their heart, not just the hole in their wallet. But the wallet part is important too because we are talking about business. (laughs) And I want to talk about the awards that you were talking about. You guys have won quite a few business awards now. And I want to ask a question and bear with me because it's going to sound rude straight up, but I genuinely want to know the answer. Why do you think you won? 
What is it about your business that keeps attracting these awards that it is so successful, not just from a money point of view? I think the funniest story was the Telstra Business yeah. Awards. <laughs> the Telstra Business Awards has been like a continued, just like funny platform for us to enter because Hannah and I kind of rock up to these events and we think, oh, no, nah, we're definitely not going to win. Like, oh, we're the and we're the ditzy, like, like young, young girls who have a jewellery company. And it's discrediting to say, and it doesn't sound nice, but when you do show up at a business event and you say you own a jewellery company, a lot of people kind of think, oh, yeah, okay, jewellery. There's so much more to the business than that. And I think that winning the Telstra Business Awards as a jewellery company with a higher purpose, that was amazing. Mm. So I truly think that back in 2016, we weren't even that big then. It was us going into a room of judges. We knew that we were up against massive businesses and we really had nothing to lose. So that night we won (laughs) the Small Business Award. And then what happens is there's the people who win all of the awards. There's like micro, small business, medium business. The person who won the medium business was this really, really big business. And so Rachel and I were like, woohoo, we won. We started downing the champagnes because we were kind of holding off till then. And we were at the back of the room. Yeah, the back of the room, (laughs) like no one can see us. We're like downing champagne. And then they announced the overall award. And they announced that we won. <laughs> and Rachel and I this were so, so we were so shocked. They put the like spotlight on you and the camera comes close to you and stuff. We like put our champagne down, we stood up, we walked into each other. Headbutted each other on <laughs> camera. Because <laughs> we were so much like, no, no, not us, not us. And then we stood up, looked at each other, and went, doof. It was so funny. But yeah, so I think the thing with that, and I remember that the judges, it was like middle-aged men who were judging us. And I truly believe it's because we knew that we weren't there yet, but we knew where we wanted to go. And I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, that's a great thing to be able to talk about as well, because one thing we hear the most is that people are too scared to start because they've got this grand idea or a fantastic idea, but not grand plans, and they just don't know where to start. And what we hear so often is just start and see how you go along the way. Yeah, I think what's another quote? It's the fear of failure has killed more dreams than failure itself. Honestly, that's why we laugh. We're like, fake it till you make it is like one of our biggest lines all of this way through because you have to have that, you know, fake till you make it attitude to actually, you know, convince everyone along the ride that you can get there. Mm. Honestly, one page business plan is all you need. All you need is an amazing idea, passion and conviction, conviction, but, you know, You have to want to do it for free because it's not going to come back and reward you for years to come. Where do you see Francesca in the next couple of years? We talk about, you know, mission plans and everything, but, you know, what's the next step or what do you want to put out into the world? Say it now on our podcast and, you know, let's see if it comes out in a couple of years. No, it's a secret, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) We can't tell you. No, I think that even this question in itself has evolved for us over time Mm. because, as you grow, you get a little bit more excited about the possibilities of the future. You're kind of a little bit conservative at the start. And I think that one brand awareness, we would love to be known as Australia's jewellery label because we're still feeling like we need to get the word out there that we even exist. So doing things like this is incredible. You know, at the heart of our company is giving back. And one of our longest dreams is to create the Francesca Foundation. So if we can actually create our own foundation and do on-the-ground projects that we manage ourselves, 
that's when we'll be winning. Mm. We want to have, you know, micro loans for women eventually. We want our girls to be able to run missions on causes. So if we can run a project through the Francesca Mm. Foundation in-house, I can only imagine the fulfilment that we're going to feel. And so, yeah, being able to experience the impact of what we give back will be incredible. Oh, that's good. That's given me goose, like legitimate goosebumps. That's so exciting. What a great, wonderful mission to have as well as a business that is successful and is making money. Again, we're talking about business here. You are making money and you're being able to give it back like that. That's that's a really wonderful thing to be it's able to look scary, forward to. It's scary, but it's a big dream of ours and I think, you know. It's not scary. It's not worth it. Exactly. That's, that's my motto over here. <laughs> we finish off all our episodes with the same five questions. I love hearing the different answers from the different types of startup owners we we talk to. So I'm going to launch right in with number one. What is the one piece of equipment, technology, whatever it may be that you just could not live without? I would have to say Shopify. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we use Shopify to run our online business Shopify, and it's so powerful. (laughs) Without Shopify, we have no money. (laughs) All right. Number two is what do you wish someone had told you in the early days. So not what you think you've learned, but you wish that, oh God, in that first year, if someone had just said this one thing, life would have been so much easier. I wish that someone had told me that Instagram was going to be as big as it was in 2013, because I know so many big businesses who really fostered that in the early days. And that is my biggest, I'm just like, if only I knew. Mm. What's the next Instagram? Oh, God, if I knew that, I wouldn't be hosting this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Number three, what is one thing, and there doesn't have to be a thing, but if there is, what's one thing that you would go back in time and change, whether that's a mistake you think you made or something that you wish you could have done better? Oh, there's really funny stories. Like one day I left the door of the shop open, No, and then another time we got broken into. So things like that that still sort of like hurt me. (laughs) So you got robbed when you left the door open? Yeah, we got robbed and we were underinsured. So it's like make sure your insurances are up to date. That's probably a massive one. I don't really have many regrets. No. I think everything, yeah, happens for a reason. It totally does. No regrets, but a mistake in locking the door perhaps. Not even one. (laughs) (laughs) What are you most proud of for Francesca? I'm so proud that we get to work alongside and support other women, our customers, our employees and each other. Like I honestly feel fulfilled every day that we get to grow together. Yeah, I would say I'm most proud of how far we've come. I Mm. think that a lot of companies and, you know, new brands, they hit some roadblocks and you don't feel like you can push through. And I think our perseverance is what I'm most proud of. And lucky last, what's the biggest misconception people have of you or of your business? Oh, that our really dad big... started the company for oh, yeah. <laughs> That our dad funded the business and it couldn't be further from the truth. I think people see success happen fast and they don't see the days and days of like honestly blood, sweat and tears. And I, even till today, the yeah. reality of running a business is not as squeaky shiny clean as it looks on the surface I was I I was joking before (laughs) this was so funny I was like so you run a business um sure do you want to have no friends for years um sure do you want to have no money for years no sleep (laughs) no sleep and I think it's one of those things that I think the biggest misconception is that success happens overnight that you luck out yeah no such thing as luck I always say that and I love that you girls have worked bloody hard and it's gone to show and I'm so excited for where you continue to go 
Thank you so much. And we're so proud of you as well. Thank you so much, girls. It's always so beautiful to speak to you. I I love hearing your story and I learn something new every time. Just so wonderful. And there's going to be so many people listening who, you know, may not have heard your story. And and I think that's really exciting too. We're so so excited. Thank you for having us. And now it's time for Mia. Hey, I'm Mia Friedman. I'm the founder of Lady Startup and the co-founder of Mama Mia. And every week I have been bringing you a Lady Startup lesson that's inspired by the wonderful and inspiring women. I'm inspired by the inspiration featured on every episode. At Mama Mia and Lady Startup, we have a core purpose and that is to help make the world a better place for women and girls. It was the reason that I started Mamma Mia back in my lounge room and it's the reason that I started the Lady Startup Movement on the floor of my office just a few years ago. Every single thing that we do in our business has this core purpose at the centre. So everything that we want to do, every decision that we make, we put it through that filter. And that's a lot like Hannah and Rachel's business, Francesca. Now, your business doesn't need to have a core purpose. In fact, you may find you might develop one over time or not at all. But as someone who has a business that does have a core purpose, I want to explain a little bit about why it's a great thing. So for us, it means that every piece of content that we make, every article, every podcast that we create, every business decision we take when we decide who's advertising to take or whose business to pursue, even when we're thinking about things like, for example, what photographs do we buy to run with our written articles? And it occurred to me around the time that we formulated and articulated our core purpose to make the world a better place for women and girls, that it would be hypocritical and counter to that core purpose if we bought paparazzi photos, in in fact, supported the paparazzi economy in any way. Now, we could make more money if we bought paparazzi photos of people, women and children usually, because that's who's stalked by the paparazzi, followed to the beach, followed to picking up the kids from school, having cameras stuck up their skirt when their underwear is showing, body shamed when they go for a run or when they're just out and about. All of those things People like to click on them. So all our competitors buy those photos and support that economy. But we know because of our core purpose that it is contrary to our core purpose because the paparazzi economy does not make the world a better place for women and girls. So that's an example of a small decision that we make or a significant decision really because of our core purpose. Having the core purpose is the thing that keeps our fires ignited and the passion for what we do alive. It's also a really unifying focus for everybody who works at Mamma Mia. If you ask them what's our core purpose, they would all be able to tell you. So without a core purpose, your business might lack momentum and it might feel like there's no purpose really to what you're doing. It doesn't have to be a worthy one. Like we don't get ourselves confused with the UN or a charity. We make the world a better place for women and girls by supporting women's charities and also by making them feel seen and heard and understood through our content. So if you own a business already or if you're in the process of starting one, I'd love to hear what your core purpose are or why you opted not to have one if it's something that you think is missing. Share yours inside our Facebook group, The Lady Startup Lounge. Plus, if you're a fan of Lady Startup, you might also enjoy How I Work. On How I Work, Dr. Amantha Imba, who is an organisational psychologist, she interviews some of the world's most successful people and she unpacks with them the tactics and the rituals and the habits that make them so productive. 
Amantha recently had Naomi Bagdonis on the show who teaches humour at Stanford Business School and they spoke about how to bring more levity and humour into your work. When it was time to write a proposal, again, something that could seem really intimidating, we started a Google Doc and we titled it A Really Shitty Proposal. And so every time we opened this doc, it would say a really shitty proposal. And it'd be like, you know, I text her at 6am and be like, Hey, I'm in the shitty proposal right now. I'll see you there later today. And it's so funny that stuck. So we ended up kind of mistakenly turning it in at one point to a publisher that way. And they loved it so much that we ended up pitching it to all the publishers as a really shitty proposal, humorously a really shitty proposal. And so we knew at the beginning that it, there were parts of this that were going to be really hard and were going to be a slog. And so it was our way of creating these hacks and reminders to ourselves to have a sense of levity and really to practice what we preach as we're doing it. Search How I Work wherever you listen to your podcasts. And now back to Georgia. Thanks for listening to Lady Startup Stories. To find out more about the Lady Startup courses, head to www.ladystartup.com forward slash pages forward slash home. I'm Georgia Love. Find out more about my Lady Startup at www.lovegeorgeelliot.com. Lady Startup Stories is produced by Michaela Floriano. The executive producer of Lady Startup Stories is Eliza Ratliff. See you on mamamia.com.au. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures.